Good evening. It's good to be with you. You know, you may have heard the story about the father who was watching his small son draw a picture and the young lad was intensely focused, totally engrossed in his work of art. Crayons were scattered everywhere. Unfinished sketches were wadded and cast aside. And without wanting to break the boy's concentration, the dad gently inquired, Say, son, what are you drawing? Without looking up, the small boy replied, God. And somewhat taken aback, the father said, Well, son, no one knows what God looks like. And the boy confidently gazed at his masterpiece and replied, Well, they will when I get through. (laughs) You know, we all have a picture of God in our minds. And our picture of God is critically important to who we are. In fact, our picture of God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God. If that is true, and I believe it is, then a spiritual flaw regarding our mental picture of God can have a devastating effect on our faith. We must have a right view of God or else it will be distorted and out of focus. Too often we allow circumstances to shape our picture of God. If our circumstances are good, it's easy to believe that God must be good. But if our circumstances are bad, then sometimes we draw some false conclusions about God. In a time of personal adversity and deep struggle, our picture of God can become flawed. In the midst of trials, our picture of God can become influenced by tragic circumstances. We begin to see God through our circumstances rather than seeing our circumstances through God. Thus, if our circumstances are good, we tend to see God as good. But when tragedy strikes and bad things happen, the divine picture can become greatly distorted out of focus, a misrepresentation of who he is. Unfortunately, when the picture becomes flawed, so does our faith. Our faith can only be as strong as our right picture of God. More times than not, a distorted picture of God occurs in the midst of severe trials and personal troubles. When we become discouraged, we can soon become greatly disillusioned about who God is. There's been no one in all of history who had more reason to develop a distorted picture of God than Job. Job was a wealthy, successful man, a family man with ten children and vast herds and flocks. He was well respected in the community and no man on earth lived a more upright life than he did. But then God allowed Satan to test Job's faith. And Satan was permitted to do anything he wanted to Job except take his life. And before you read to the end of the second chapter in Job, all of his children have been killed. All of his herds have been stolen. His body is diseased with boils that run with pus and blood. And he is left bankrupt with nothing and no one to turn to but a broken-hearted wife who herself is angry at God. As you read through the book, you realize that Job's view of God has become blurred by his circumstances. We admire Job's endurance, but we sometimes forget that he struggled over what happened to him. He has lost his fortune, his fame, his family, his wife's support, And then three of his friends show up to try to explain to him why he's going through all of this difficulty and their words are anything but encouraging. Discouragement has marred his picture of the Almighty. He's lost sight of the true God. Such malady could be diagnosed as the four spiritual flaws. They are flaws in Job's perception of God. Notice that I said flaws, not laws. You may be familiar with a booklet titled The Four Spiritual Laws that attempts to distill the essentials of the gospel into four spiritual laws that govern God's spiritual kingdom. But I'm talking about flaws. 
We all know what a flaw is. It's an imperfection or a distortion. In this case, it is anything that hinders a right view of God. Job is not the only one that suffers from these flaws. Anyone can suffer from a wrong picture of God, especially when life isn't going our way. We too can succumb to the four spiritual flaws. As one of your elders, I've heard these flaws again and again from people who were going through difficult times. And as a believer, I myself have fallen victim to their untruths. We all want to be aware of them and then avoid them like the plague. So I would like us to spend our time this evening looking at these flaws in the life of Job. Turn, if you would, with me, please, to Job chapter 9. In this epic encounter with Job's friends, the devil uses a new approach. After attacking Job's family, fortune, health, Satan vandalizes Job's picture of God. In essence, the devil draws a mustache on the Mona Lisa. He spray paints graffiti on Job's image of God. Using Job's friends to do the deadly work, Satan gains access to the canvas of Job's mind. Satan will do the same with our image of God. If he can't get us to curse the true God, he'll get us to believe in a wrong picture of God. There's nothing, I repeat, nothing more devastating to your life than a wrong view of God. It colors all that you are and all that you do. So ask yourself as we go through this, is your picture of God flawed? Job's was. Let's examine these four flaws one at a time and see what lessons we can learn. Here is spiritual flaw number one. God won't listen to me. God won't listen to me. As the intensity of his suffering mounts, Job cries out to God for relief. But there is no immediate answer, no miraculous deliverance, no dramatic change, no nothing. So what is Job's conclusion? God won't listen to me. Here's the scene. One of Job's three friends, Bildad, has just spoken discouraging words to Job. He has told him that God blesses those who are good and punishes those who are evil. So Job's situation must be that because his children were sinners and his faith in God was faulty. So now Job responds to his friend's misguided advice. Look at Job 9 verses 1 to 3. Then Job answered, in truth I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. When you hear that, it makes you want to shout at him, No, Job, don't agree with Bildad. He's wrong. He hasn't told you the truth. Bildad's got Job believing his half-truths about God. Job's flaw is in thinking God is too big, too powerful, too sovereign to listen to him. God is too awesome to pay attention to Job. He reasons, well, why would God listen to me? And from this point on, the emphasis in Job's thinking is on the justice of God. And the image that is uppermost in his mind is that of a legal trial. He wants to take God to court and have the opportunity to prove his own integrity. All throughout these chapters, the vocabulary that is used has to do with legal proceedings. Words like dispute and answer in verse 3, judge in verse 15, summon in verse 19, all have to do with courtroom processes. And Job pictures God as a severe judge, one who is unapproachable, who is unmerciful. So he approaches God accordingly. Job appeals to God to appear in court so that he can present his case that he hasn't done anything to deserve this kind of treatment. He's confident the divine judge will change his decision and reverse his judgment once he 
discovers Job's innocence. However, Job fears that were God to cross-examine him and ask just one question that he couldn't answer. He reasons, God is so intimidating, how could I talk to him? How could I have communication with God? If he asked me one question, I'd just dissolve. Why does Job feel so insignificant? Because his picture of God is that he is so powerful that he wouldn't give Job the time of day. Listen to this description of God in verses 4 to 9. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how when he overturns them in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? God is the subject, the actor in all of these phrases. God the all-wise God the shaker of the earth. God the creator of the heavens. God the suspender of the planets. How can Job answer the Almighty? Verse 10. Who does great things, unfathomable, and wondrous works without number? Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Job rightly sees God as incomprehensible, but wrongly pictures him as unapproachable. Yes, God is sovereign, but he is not so distant and far removed that we cannot know him and have a close personal relationship with him. But Job is at a disadvantage compared to you and me. We have the luxury of the New Testament revelation and all of the Old Testament. And we have the entire history of the church to this point. And yet with all of these advantages and broader perceptions and fuller revelation, we still find ourselves in Job's shoes too often, don't we? We forget that God is merciful, full of grace, truth, and love. What a contrast to Job's next perception. Here Job says God is a monster. Let's read starting in verse 13. God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Rahab was a mythological sea creature a sea monster ready to devour its helpless victims. And Job sees God as Rahab, a monster ready to pounce on innocent victims like Job. Job insinuates he would have to throw himself in the mercy of the court before he could get God to hear him. Job says, if I pray, I can't believe God's even listening to me. Why is that? Because Job's circumstances aren't changing. He's thinking, if God were listening, my circumstances would change. I call out day and night, but God's not listening. My prayers aren't going any higher than the ceiling. No matter how much I pour out my heart to God, I know that God is not listening to me. That's how low he has sunk. Job is feeling as low as anyone can feel. He isn't just depressed, he's despondent. Have you ever felt like that in prayer? You pray fervently for a family member to be saved, but nothing happens? Or you pray faithfully for a loved one to get well, but nothing happens? The only conclusion you may come to is, God, you're not listening to me. I'm praying, but nothing's happening. You can't be listening. But just because nothing is happening doesn't mean that God isn't listening. Perhaps you've heard it said that when we pray, God answers with yes, no, or wait. Right now, Job is having to wait on God. But he's misreading wait as 
God's not listening. And because he has to wait, he's falsely assuming that God's not hearing his prayer. But is that the case? Is that true? Does God hear our prayers? Of course God hears our prayers. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call on me and I will answer you and I'll tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Psalm 34, 17 and 18 tells us the righteous cry and the Lord hears and the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 145, 18 says the Lord is near to all who call upon him. But Job has bought into the devil's lie. He now believes a flawed view of God. Job falsely assumes that God is so big, so busy, and so preoccupied that he's not listening to his cries for help. But God did hear. God simply chose to wait before he answered. Aren't you glad that God is not so busy hanging out Orion or setting Pleiades in place and suspending the planets that he doesn't have time for you and me? Aren't you glad that God hears our call? Every time we call out to him, he hears us. He listens. But just remember, he isn't always going to give you a quick answer. And sometimes his answer may be quite different than the one you wanted, but he does listen. He created you and he'll do the very best for you, even though you may not be able to see what it is right away. Here's spiritual flaw number two. God isn't fair. God isn't fair. When we get down emotionally, we often question God's justice. We say, God, this isn't fair. And what we really mean by that is, God, I don't deserve this. Job is at that point. Look at verses 17 to 20. For he bruises me with the tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. Job's reasoning here makes some sense, doesn't it? The punishment should fit the crime. If a man parks his car in a no parking zone, should he get the death penalty? No, because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Job is bruised and wounded but innocent. And so in effect, he asks, what have I done to deserve this? Job wanted to appear before God in court and present his case. He knows he's right, but if he goes into the courtroom with God, he feels his own mouth will condemn him. He would become so confused and so intimidated that he would end up condemning himself. And indirectly, Job is declaring God to be unfair. Now understand that when Job says he's guiltless, he's not claiming to be sinless. He's not proclaiming his moral perfection, just his relative innocence. He doesn't believe he's done anything to deserve this kind of treatment. And if you look back at Job chapter 1, he hasn't. He was a righteous man and he did nothing to deserve the circumstances in which he now finds himself. Job's mood has taken a sudden swing. He is now filled with hopeless despair and he, he feels that even if he confessed his sins, God would still declare him guilty. His bitterness has taken a sudden turn inward. Instead of merely questioning God's scrutiny, his anxiety turns to soulful despair. Is Job beginning to believe that God is the author of the evil that's befallen him? Has his faith completely deserted him? The image swirling about in his mind now turns into a soulful mourning wherein he sees time as irrelevant and attempts at productivity vain. His inevitable condemnation is already determined by an unjust sovereign. Verse 21, I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. 
If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of his judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Job moans that there's no justice with God. If both the guilty and the guiltless suffer in life, what justice is that? The bottom line is, if one man keeps God's word and another doesn't, and yet both suffer, what justice is that? Is that fair? The argument is now in a fever heat. And then Job takes it a dangerous step further. He risks everything. He is actually saying that God punishes the good and rewards the evil. Talk about injustice. Talk about boldly blaspheming where no man has gone before. Two facts about Job are clear. He is blameless and yet he was blasted. And his conclusion is that this means God is unjust, even cruel. Another thing that seems to be in his mind here, perhaps it's his main complaint, is that God is aloof. He says he covers the faces of the earth's judges. In other words, he's detached and distant. Not only is God unjust, he's cruel and aloof. He's unfair. But wait a minute. Haven't you ever thought the same thing? I know I have. I've been there. I've done that. There's the young girl who keeps herself sexually pure, but the guys aren't asking her out. Then there's another girl who's promiscuous and morally unfaithful, and the guys are chasing after her. Pure girl's heart cries out, God, that's not fair. Why does the one who does right seem to be punished and the one who does wrong is rewarded? God, that's not fair. How about at the office? An honest employee doesn't play games with his travel expenses. He's straightforward. He's honest in his dealings with the public and his co-workers. And yet he gets passed over for a promotion. Someone else plays financial hanky-panky and still gets the raise. And the honest man cries out, God, that's not fair. Why does this happen? Someone else says, I pray and go to church. My husband loves the Lord and obeys him. We both serve the Lord. And yet it's our child who was diagnosed with leukemia. Why was it our child? It just doesn't seem fair. Have you ever wrestled with such discouragement? Listen, that's flawed thinking. God is just and fair. We must remember that God doesn't settle his accounts until the end of time. One day God is going to make everything right, but presently this world is upside down. Life isn't fair. But don't think that God isn't fair. Just because God hasn't cleared up a matter right now doesn't mean that he won't someday. Genesis 18.25 asks the rhetorical question with the obvious affirmative answer, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Although my analogy isn't perfect, picture it this way. God deals with the righteous on a cash basis and the unrighteous on a credit basis. According to Hebrews 12, when the righteous sin, they pay for it as they go along. God disciplines us now when we sin. But for the unrighteous, it's all on credit. They don't necessarily pay for their sin right now. God doesn't presently discipline those who are not his children. But that doesn't mean that he won't one day deal with their sin. At the end of time, God will settle his accounts with the unrighteous. As Vance Havner used to say, there's a payday someday. God is fair. It's just a matter of time. As for God's aloofness and cruelty, Job was at a disadvantage. He didn't understand what was going on behind the scenes. But let's not forget the invisible spiritual warfare between God and Satan that's going on here. Satan wants Job discouraged. God's not fair. That's the second spiritual flaw. Don't believe it. That's the devil's lie. God will do you right. Here's spiritual flaw number three. 
God won't forgive me. God won't forgive me. Have you ever thought that? God won't forgive me? That's an easy conclusion to come to if you feel you're suffering for past sins even after you have confessed them. Listen to what Job says, verse 25. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. Job feels his days are passing by quickly without any relief from God. He fears God is not going to do anything to make it right. The images of a sprinting runner on the land, of the reed boats passing by on the water, those were light, fast, maneuverable skiffs made of braided reeds that were used on waters and the rivers in the ancient Near East, and the fast-swooping eagles of the air. All of those images reinforce Job's perception of a life that is now quickly fading in significance. As Job sees the days of his life fading in the distance, as it were, a new thought occurs. Why do anything? You remember in the old movies that in order to indicate the passing of time, a calendar would be shown on the screen and a fan would be blowing the pages of the calendar off the screen and leaves would come blowing by, signifying the coming of winter and then snow would fall behind the calendar picturing the coming winter and then grass would grow representing the arrival of spring all showed the passing of time that's the picture Job has his life is passing by quickly but God's not doing anything to get him out of this trial verses 27 to 31 though I say I will forget my complaint I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful I'm afraid of all my pains. I know that you will not acquit me. I'm accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. Job sinks even lower. He believes God is never going to forgive him. He feels he's going to go to his grave paying for his sin. Even if he cleans up his life and washes himself with snow and cleanses his hands with lye, it's a picture of a purification ritual. He says, God won't forgive him. If I confess my sin, repent, and turn to the Lord, God's still going to throw me into a mud hole. I'll clean myself up, and God will make me dirty again, just as if I never cleaned myself up to begin with. Job is losing all hope that God will forgive him. A haunting sense of guilt is echoing and vibrating in his conscience. He doesn't know what sin he's done. He just feels guilty and unclean. Do you know the difference between the correction of the Holy Spirit and the accusation of Satan? I mean, when you've sinned and you feel guilty about it, how do you know whether or not it's the Holy Spirit correcting you or whether it's Satan accusing you? Let me tell you. If it's the Holy Spirit, He will point out specific sins in our lives. He puts His finger on the sin that has not been confessed. However, the devil, when he accuses us of sin, will either be so vague as to not specifically point out the sin, or will accuse us of sin that we have already confessed to the Lord. Although we've already been forgiven, Satan doesn't want us to feel that way. That's where Job is. Just as Job's despair takes him dangerously close to the very pit of hell, right where Satan would like him to remain, a small light illumines a bit of hope. Look at verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Of course, Job is right. God is not a man. Man is not on an equal footing with God. God is too far beyond Job for him to hope to reach the Creator by standard human methods. God is too transcendent, too unfathomable, too infinite for his human mind to understand. Job is longing for someone to represent him before God. 
Someone who can plead his case. Job wants a mediator, an advocate. Unknown to Job, his statement looks forward to the coming Jesus Christ who will be that mediator, that umpire, equal to both sides. From the cross, Jesus will be able to lay his hand upon God and his hand upon man and bring the two parties together who have had the biggest dispute in the history of creation. Job's heart cry ultimately looks to Christ. Verse 34, Let him remove his rod from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. In the absence of a mediator, Job pleads with God to remove the rod of discipline from him. If God would ease up, Job could go to court and plead his own case with God and be shown right for suffering unjustly. Is God really unforgiving? Must God be coerced, as it were, to pardon our iniquity? Is he begrudging to wash away our sins? Not at all. God is in the business of forgiving our sins, all of our sins. If we will confess our sins, he delights to forgive them all. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You and I will never commit a sin that the blood of Jesus Christ is not powerful enough to wash away. As far as the east is from the west, so far will he remove our transgressions from us, says in Psalm 103.12. God will place our sins behind his back where he can't see them anymore. God will bury our sins in the sea of his forgetfulness where there will be no effect anymore. In Isaiah 118, he tells us, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Listen, if, if God can forgive David of adultery and murder, if God can forgive Noah of drunkenness, if God can forgive Abraham of lying, if God can forgive Saul of persecuting the church, if God can forgive Peter of denying the Lord, if God can forgive the thief on the cross for stealing, if God can forgive Zacchaeus for cheating, then he can forgive you and me for our sins. All of them. Fully, completely, immediately, and unconditionally. Here's spiritual flaw number four. God doesn't love me. God doesn't love me. Job doesn't believe that God cares for him. He doesn't believe God loves him and has a wonderful plan for his life. He's, he's thinking, if this is how God treats his children, I'd hate to be his enemy. Why does Job believe this lie? Because Job is looking at his circumstances. His view of God is colored by his circumstances. Job sees only bad circumstances and concludes that this means God doesn't love him. Listen to Job in chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Or do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal, or your years as man's years, that you would seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Job is saying, God, I'm not guilty. I know it, and you know it. Yet you won't stop. What's worse, God, you won't tell me what I've done wrong to deserve this. I'd confess my sin and I'd make it right, but God, you won't even tell me what my sin is. You know what? 
there was no sin for Job to confess under this trial. There's basically nothing to forgive. God, why are you oppressing me? The object of your love. I think you've got me mixed up with somebody else. You must need some bifocals, God. You see like a man sees. Surely you're not seeing my life, are you? Job feels that God is, in a sense, getting older and not seeing as well as he used to. To Job, God is just looking and looking for some dirt to hold against Job. It's like an eternal entrapment. Job perceives God like some sort of intergalactic IRS agent sifting through his files for something to hold against him. And Job continues his lament to God in verses 8 to 13. Your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and loving kindness and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you have concealed in your heart, I know that this is within you. As Job sees it, God has made him just to destroy him. God has set him up just to knock him down. He created him just to crush him. Job looks back on his life in the womb. Symbolically, Job says it's like pouring milk into a glass that after a while begins to settle, compress, and become cheese. So he was wonderfully fashioned by God in the womb. What puzzles Job the most, though, is that God has known all along that he was going to do this harm to him. He asked with a confused heart, why do you keep it from me? You've been keeping this from me all along. So why doesn't God tell him? Why does he keep the plan concealed? Worse, why does the intensity of the attack continually increase? That's what he tells God in verses 14 to 17. If I sin, then you would take note of me and would not acquit me of my guilt. If I'm wicked, woe to me. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am sated with disgrace and conscious of my misery. Should my head be lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. And again, you would show your power against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. Job feels that God has made him wonderfully with great design, only to have a nice target at which to shoot. God, you don't care about me. God, what have you got against me? Whether I'm innocent or guilty, my life is destroyed all the same. Verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Would he not let my few days alone? Withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of utter gloom as darkness itself, of deep shadow without order, and which shines as the darkness. This passage shows the depths of Job's despair. He laments that he was ever born. He pleads with God to leave him alone and let him have a few final days of peace perhaps even some joy before he dies. But even here, Job's existential desperation is compounded because Job doesn't see death as restful solace. He says, God, I wish I could have bypassed life completely. I wish you could have transported me from the womb to the tomb and spared me all of this pain. Job wishes that before he dies, God would cut him some slack and allow him a few moments of peace God, if you would just leave me alone for a few days, I could catch my breath and be happy. God, if you just let me take a vacation from you, everything would be great in my life. God, you don't care about me. This plan for my life that you've got, you planned all along just to crush me. Is that a right view of God? Sounds pretty convincing to us at times, doesn't it? Especially when the bad trials come and we read these verses through the grid of our circumstances. 
You remember how God sent the nation of Israel into exile for all of its many sins, and yet God had his prophet Jeremiah send those exiles a special message from him. God had a good plan for those exiles. In Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. The apostle Paul wrote, The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. That's true. It's just that within God's will, there are times that he has ordained trials to come into our lives. But God has a purpose and God has a reason. God's will is never without a higher purpose. God's will is ultimately for his glory and our good. The psalmist tells us the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is a good God. If we look at our losses and our trials and our circumstances, so many times we would come to the same conclusion that God doesn't love us. But we must be careful to see God not through our circumstances, but through his word. God is a good God who has provided so very much for us. As I look back on Job's response to Bildad, I think two messages stand out clearly. First, this is a message of warning. Job was the most righteous man on earth. He feared God and he walked with God. And yet Job descended to the low point of believing these lies about God. If it can happen to Job, it can happen to you and me. In an argument from the greater to the lesser, we're just as vulnerable, if not more so. So we must refuse to buy into Satan's lies. If we look at God through the prism of our circumstances, our view of God will become distorted. We must see God clearly through his word and then our circumstances accordingly. Yes, this, is, this cry of Job's is a message of warning for you and me. Many times we believe what we feel about God rather than what we know. To be true. Second, this is a message of hope. You say, Bruce, I really don't see a whole lot of hope here. Well, it's there. All through Job's collapse, God is still there with him. He's listening, he's forgiving, he's caring. God never ever left Job's side. So, yes, this is a message of hope. God will never give up on you and me either, even when we go through the valley. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Let me say that again. When our faith falters, God remains faithful. Solid as a rock. David found this to be true. In Psalm 37, he says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that God promises, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Paul believed it while he was sitting in a Roman jail. He said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In his epistle, James writes, for you've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. When it seemed that God was the farthest away, God was still a part of Job's life. That's the message of hope and encouragement. Job asks, why was I born? In the light of his losses and his personal suffering, it all seemed like such a waste. But God knew that what he was doing then, and he knows what he is doing now. If you're presently going through a dark valley, know that God is right there with you. If it seems as if God is far away, know that God is right with you. Even if the circumstances are not changing, you can trust him. To illustrate this point, 
Let me tell you a story of an incident that occurred to me many years ago. Back when I was working in law enforcement, one of the things that I did in my job was to teach tactical and pursuit driving at the police academy. And on one particular occasion, I was instructing a group of students in an evening class that ran from 3 p.m. until 12 midnight, and it was the first night of the class. And one of the students assigned to me was a young man named Jeff. Let's just say that Jeff was not a very good driver. During the daylight hours of the class, I observed that Jeff's skills were less than perfect. But through the years, I had had many students who initially lacked the skills to successfully complete the exercises, but with practice, they eventually gained the skill and ability to pass the course. So I figured that with some practice, Jeff would get to the point that he would succeed. And as the evening wore on, and we moved from exercise to exercise, Jeff's driving began to have a rather negative effect on the BLT sandwich I had eaten earlier that day for lunch. And it was dark by the time we finally came to the evasive maneuver and control braking exercise. It's an exercise in which the student drives into a lane of cones at 35 miles an hour. And then just as the lane ends, he must change lanes, uh, one of two lanes, either one on the right or one on the left, simulating a an evasive maneuver around something that you encounter suddenly in the road. But the student doesn't get to choose which lane he changes into. Instead, at a certain point just before he reaches the lanes, he's told by the instructor whether to go right or left. And then after driving through that lane, he has to change lanes back into an exit lane and immediately break to a complete stop before he runs out of the end of the lane. There isn't a whole lot of room, so the student has to learn how to stop quickly without skidding the tires or hitting any cones. I spent quite a bit of time demonstrating to the students how to complete the exercise, driving through it several times, carefully explaining how to smoothly steer the car so that it reduces the side-to-side -side weight transfer of the car as they change lanes, as well as how to stop the car at the end without skidding. And the other students in my car then took their turns driving through the exercise, and with a little instruction, they were able to complete it without any problems. But then it was Jeff's turn. No matter how many times we drove through that exercise, Jeff would jerk the wheel to change lanes, and the weight transfer of the car would rocket back and forth, slamming me into the car door over and over again. And then he would slam on the brakes at the end, sliding the tires and causing the seat belts to lock as our bodies were thrown forward by the momentum. And with the darkness outside limiting my field of vision and Jeff's horrible driving, my stomach became more and more unsteady and I became increasingly nauseous and sick. I finally asked him to pull over to a lighted area so that I could get out and get some fresh air. We pulled over and I got out and the next thing I know I was on my hands and knees vomiting up that BLT. Talk about embarrassing. Here I am, the instructor. And now my other students are sitting there laughing at me. And then when the other driving instructors and their students saw what was going on, they started laughing. And before long I was the laughing stock of the entire group. I mean, after all, what kind of a driving instructor gets car sick? And poor Jeff was sitting in the car thinking he would surely fail the driving course and be thrown out of the police academy, and all his friends are laughing at him too. What's my point? What's the connection? Simply this. Sometimes we think that if we turn our lives over to the Lord and trust Him, it's like getting into a car with Jeff behind the wheel. We think that God's going to make a mess of our lives. We're going to get sick. We're going to get slammed around, beat up, humiliated, embarrassed. That's the devil's lie. He's trying to flaw your image of God. The Lord is not like Jeff. He's not a bad driver. God will lovingly and carefully carry us down the highway of life 
regardless of how rough the road may be. We can trust him. That's all he wants. For us to simply trust him. He calls us to have faith in him. He invites us to turn our lives over to him. He bids us to allow him to have full sway in our lives. He listens. He cares. He is fair. He forgives. You can trust him. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we close this evening, we're struck by how much we do not know about you and your ways. Your understanding is certainly far above our limited ability to comprehend. Lord, we pray that we will not fall into the pattern of believing any of these four spiritual flaws, that you won't listen, that you aren't fair, that you won't forgive, or that you don't love us. May we always see you through the grid of your word rather than the grid of our circumstances. And we want to pray, Lord, for those here this evening who are hurting or fearful at this time because of troubling circumstances in their lives. May they recognize that you're at work in their lives, using those situations to mold their character into that like your precious Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May they realize that you'll always be with them, no matter how difficult or dark the days ahead may be. And Lord, for those who are here tonight and don't know Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, who've never experienced the peace that comes from knowing someone who will never leave them or forsake them regardless of their circumstances, who've never known someone who will forgive all of their sin, no matter how depraved or how repulsive it may be, We pray that tonight would be the night that they would flee from their sin and cling to the cross to be held forever in the tender arms of Jesus. All these things we pray in his precious name. Amen.